This is a Federal News Network podcast. Reeling from two highly controversial Supreme Court decisions and some revelatory hearings concerning the Capitol Hill break-in, Congress is on recess this week, but not everything has stopped on the Hill. We get more now from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And Lauren, what a week it's been. It's, there used to be that old TV comedy show. That was the week that was. But two landmark and controversial, world-shaking Supreme Court decisions, plus those hearings on the Trump administration and January 6, 2021. Quite a week. What's your take and what will they be doing while on recess? Well, I'm sure they'll go home and react to these decisions. Uh, for Democrats in particular, Friday's ruling on Roe v. Wade and scrapping that and also the Casey decision from the 90s, um, that's going to resonate hugely for them. They're going to go home and um, probably try to reassure voters in their states what they're going to do to fight against it. On the other hand, you have Republicans and conservatives who have wanted this outcome for a long time, who are happy with it, thrilled with it, and going to you know go home and, and take that to their voters as well. So I think that this decision is going to redound not just this week, but in the weeks and months to come, including in the November elections. In terms of how they respond legislatively on the Hill, obviously we won't see much this coming week, but I think this will come up in the appropriations process and in discussions about other votes that they might be able to take. The House passed a bill many months ago to try to codify provisions of Roe v. Wade and Casey into law. The Senate didn't take that up because of the 60 vote requirement for most things, which will probably stop them from doing very much about it um, for, for the rest of the year. But we may see some more votes and some more discussion, at least. And on the gun issue, you did have this juxtaposition of a Supreme Court ruling that um, makes it easier potentially to carry guns in New York state and elsewhere with this bipartisan deal to put some gun regulations in place, trying to protect Second Amendment rights for Republicans, as, as they would describe it, but at the same time, make a dent in changing some background check rules, providing funding. So again, th- those two issues, those court rulings are are big, and I think we'll redound for a long time. Well, I guess I'm hoping that members of both parties, regardless of what side you're on and the gun question or the abortion question, will maybe tone down the rhetoric. We're not seeing that too much so far neither gloating nor threatening the Supreme Court or wanting to burn the whole place down over that decision. Neither side should be really fanning the flames, but I'm not sure we can count on that. I think we'll see, we'll see some rhetoric that's perhaps heated at times, um, but you know this is a deeply felt position on, on both sides. People who were worried about this ruling after the leak or the the draft ruling was leaked to Politico and, and was out there and people who have wanted this outcome for a long time and, um, you know, what happens next and in what direction do things go, um, both federally and at the state level. I think a lot of this discussion obviously is going to shift to states that have either trigger laws or maybe considering new legislation on either side of this question. All right. And uh, getting back to Congress itself, you mentioned some committee work, maybe on the appropriations bills. They'll try to grind out something during the recess. Is that possible? That is possible. This is um, it's a two week floor recess, at least. And in the House, they call it a committee work week. And the main action will come in the Appropriations Committee, which has been very busy the last three weeks. Um, As of last Friday, they approved 12 bills through subcommittee and then another six of those made it through full committee. They're going to try to do the other six this week if they can get all that done. Um, It was a pretty ambitious schedule to do, get all of them done in three weeks and out and available for floor votes. Potentially when they come back in July, they'd like to get that through. Um, It's important to remember these are 
written using a top line number that only House Democrats have agreed to. It doesn't reflect a bicameral, bipartisan top line number, which will be necessary for any sort of final version of these. But this is very much the House Democrats staking out their position, both in terms of funding levels and policy and writers at this point. Um, earmarks are back in the mix again this year as they were last year. Um, that's a little bit more bipartisan, where you do have Republican members seeking earmarks in many of these bills. So we'll see how that plays out this week. Um, again, it's it's been a pretty ambitious timetable to get all these through. Um, but it's it's just the first chapter in this story because the Senate has to weigh in, and then we'll see if they can get a final deal or if we're going to be talking about a continuing resolution um, around October 1st because we may not be able to get a bike bicameral deal in place by then. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And getting back for a second to the earmark question, I'm wondering if earmarks will maybe in some way blunt the desire of the Republicans to slow things down and want a continuing resolution because they feel that they might be in the majority when it comes to the next session. Um, We'd have to see how that plays out. I mean, obviously, if you lock in a continuing resolution into next year, it's the amounts that were agreed to last year, but that could lock in both sides of the equation, defense and non-defense. There is a general upward pressure right now on defense spending going much higher than President Biden wanted. We saw that with the defense authorization markups in both chambers where they came in with increases in both the House and the Senate on that. So Um, There may be real interest in getting something locked in before the end of the calendar year, if not the fiscal year, to try and lock higher amounts in place and also clear the decks for the the next group of leaders. Um, Patrick Leahy, who's the appropriations chairman, Richard Shelby, who's the vice chairman in the Senate, I think they'd both like to, in their last time doing this, as the top leaders in the appropriations process, get it done, clear the decks, and leave it to the next chamber's leadership to, to figure out what to do for fiscal 2024 when they get to that. But um, I, I think we're, we're going to see some interesting discussions around that. Um, earmarks are accepted by some Republicans, but by not all means, not all. Um, but some of the ones who are invested in are the appropriators themselves. We saw Richard Shelby get a number of earmarks in last year's bills, and um, I assume he'll be aiming for the same this year. And also before the break, there was action on the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, in the committees. Can that continue in this committee work? so-called period? Well, they because the House and the Senate have both approved those, the committees at least, they're going to be ready for floor action at some point. So I don't think we'll see much more on those until maybe July or maybe even September if they need to wait to do that. Um, again, one of the big questions there is just what are you going to set the defense top line at um, and what does that mean for the systems that funds and the personnel expenses that are out there? Um, that bill is an important one. It's been enacted for, what, six decades now. Um, no chairman wants to be the one that doesn't finish that on their watch. So I assume they'll be working to, to finish that bill by the end of the year. Again, maybe not fiscal year, but probably by the end of the calendar year, try to wrap that one up as well. And once upon a time before Ukraine, before the gun ruling, before the abortion debate, before all of these things, there was worry about competition with China and a big bill on that one. What's going on with that one? That was kind of active for a few weeks. It was. That has been sent to a House-Senate conference committee, which includes, I think, all told about a fifth of the membership of Congress or something like that because of all the committees involved in the sweeping packages that came out of the House and the Senate. There was work before this two-week break to try to narrow the list of issues and maybe even jettison some topics that they couldn't come to an agreement on to try and get a deal on that. July 4th had been a target for finishing that. Obviously, they haven't done that, but they are going to try to use this next work period to come to an agreement. At the core of it is money for semi 
semiconductor manufacturing in this country, but then there's all sorts of other provisions dealing with trade and tax and natural resources and, and things that would improve um, even science funding in the country, authorizing money for National Science Foundation, NIST, groups like that. So um, we'll have to see if they can narrow and come to an agreement on a bill that can get through both chambers, but that will be one of their priorities when they come back. And it seems strange to discuss nominees. Here we are almost to the midterm elections, but the administration not quite as new as it was a year ago, but there's still lots of nominees, aren't there, pending out there? There are, both um, administration positions and then still the courts because the vacancies come up and um, Democrats are definitely trying to use this window where they know they have control of the Senate to push through as many nominees as they can for President Biden. There's some key administration jobs they're still trying to fill and we'll see some votes. Um, One of the big ones is the vice chair for supervision at the Fed. Um, The nominee there, Barr, will get a vote at some point, it seems like, when they come back. Um, But, you know, they've, they've really tried to be efficient here and schedule a lot of nominations every week, even as they work on legislation, get some nominees in there as well. So there's no slowdown in that activity. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all but, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. 
And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult, young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane.
It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.